0: Heavenly Father, we come asking you for grace. This is a challenging passage with some stiff warning and rebuke for us. And so we need, Lord, we need your your grace to hear from your spirit that word that you would have us each personally hear in these moments, and to make sense of this passage and to conclude what we ought to conclude. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would keep your Bible open, let's walk through this passage together and see what the Lord has for us this morning. We pick up the text in verse 1 where we read that it's spring. This means that the harvest has been gathered, warm breezes are blowing across Jerusalem. But it also means that it's time to go to war. Now the Israelites, who are God's chosen people, have uh, ravaged and taken out the Ammonites at Operation Rabbah, but David, who is Israel's king, has decided to stay at home. Now understand, this was not how it was supposed to be. Kings led their battle out during warfare in those days, but this commander-in-chief has decided to give it a miss. By this chapter, David is about 50 years old and he's been king of Israel for some 20 years and he he just feels like he's earned a little time off. Hey, I've done my fair share of the fighting. You remember that Goliath guy? Yeah. I think I've earned a little time to relax. David has the coroner office. He has been tenured. The mortgage is all paid off. It's time to kick back a little. To which we say, successful friends beware. Successful friends, beware. David is about to have a midlife crisis and discover that it takes 30 years to build a good reputation and 30 minutes to destroy it. And so in these middle years it is that moral collapse comes to so many. You've put in a lot of time, you've received a lot of accolades, perhaps you've started to believe the press, think that you've made it, and yet somehow you're still a little dissatisfied And so you start to look around for something new, for something exciting, for something that now might fulfill you. And in the end, it ushers in a season of folly that cost David and would cost you more than you might ever imagine. I'm sure in a room this large, there are one or two of us who need to hear the warning this passage gives, calling us to write a different kind of story. Only takes until verse 2 for things to start to go wrong. See it there? David should be in battle, but instead he's in bed and soon he gets bored. He stretches, he yawns, he checks Facebook for the hundredth time that day. Uh, he looks around the room and he sighs. And then he pushes back the bed sheets and decides that it's time to go and get some fresh air. He walks out onto the terrace of his penthouse to survey the city at night. And then he sees her. You see the very particular description we get in verse 2? He sees what? A woman bathing. A sensual description in this context. And not just any woman, a beautiful woman. She's, she's fabulous. And not just any beautiful woman, but a very beautiful woman. The term for for very, is very unusual for it to be combined with the word beautiful. In fact, I was only able to find this instance in the whole of the Old Testament where something is described as as very beautiful. The term very could literally be translated as, as power or strength. So the text is saying that he saw her and it had a power over him. Bathsheba is a ten. She is a remarkably beautiful woman. And of course, we know that David isn't just uh, admiring her beauty. David, we think, what are you doing? You, you should have bought a fast car. You, know? <laughs> you should have dyed your hair, grown a beard, um, gone skydiving. You should have done anything in this midlife crisis apart from what you're about to do. Playing Peeping Tom from your palace roof, not just admiring beauty, but objectifying her, depersonalizing her, sexualizing her. And isn't it amazing how a text written some 3,000 years ago could have such direct relevance to our current sex-saturated world? As David watched from the comfort of his rooftop, he would never have imagined what we could see from the comfort of our laptops. We're a people who don't even need to push back the sheets and get out of bed. And this passage stands as something of a a lighthouse amidst the storm. Warning us not to make shipwreck of our purity. Not to make shipwreck of our marriages. Not to make shipwreck of our very souls. But to stay away from the rocks. To avoid them at all costs. To seek accountability when we're struggling. To seek advice when we fall. This church is not a place where sexual sin is taboo, where you must keep it in the dark and keep it to yourself. Sexual sin flourishes in the dark. If you're struggling with this, we invite you to come and talk to us. Many others have already come ahead of you, and we'd love for you to be part of that cohort, seeking to figure out how to navigate life well together. By verse 3, we read that David is standing alone on the roof at night and his smoldering desire is beginning to burst into flame. He inquires about who this woman is and the report comes back that she is what? You see it there? Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. David, of course, has just objectified her, sexualized her, depersonalized her, but she has a name. She has a father, and she has a husband. And not just any husband, but Uriah. Do do, do you remember him? He was one of David's mighty men, this loyal band of brothers who, uh, through the hardest of times, had, had stuck up for, defended, supported David. They had saved his bacon on numerous occasions at great risk to their own lives, So David and Uriah were were, were, were friends. They had been through a lot together. They'd fought side by side. This is probably why Uriah had been honored with a home that was so near to the palace. And so this answer that this woman is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah, should have stopped David in his tracks. It should have been the, the slap in the face that caused him to think, whoa, whoa now, back up. I can't believe what I was about to do. But sin has a way does it not of casting a spell. Sin has a way of of casting a spell. When we find ourselves in temptation very quickly we'll find ourselves with tunnel vision. We'll find ourselves casting out all thought, casting out all reason. We find ourselves enchanted. And under the spell, we're capable of anything. Do you think you're better than David this morning? Do I think I'm better than David this morning? The second we think we're better than David is the second we started to head down his path. The seed of every sin lives well within our own souls. And I wonder... If you are in that place this morning, if you find yourself enchanted with sin and in deeper than you ever thought possible, and the lies, the deception, and the cover-up that have only made things worse, and I wonder this morning if this passage is designed to break that spell. Does it feel like I'm talking to you this morning? Does it feel like I've been following you around this week? I haven't been. That would be super creepy. But the Holy Spirit has been, and he might be calling you home calling you home with whispers of grace to leave the destruction that will kill your soul. If you're not in that place this morning, excellent, but, but let's be vigilant. Sin has a way of casting a spell, so it don't fall under a spell. Be honest with yourself. The ability to be honest with yourself. Why is it that you're staying up to watch TV once your wife has gone to bed? Why is it that you're having that extra drink and then hiding it? Why is it that you're working every hour God sends? It can look like any number of different things. But know yourself and be ruthless with yourself before the spell kicks in. In verse 4, we get to the affair itself. And it's interesting that this is such a a famous moment. David and Bathsheba even has some cultural resonance. It's a story a lot of people have heard of and a lot of people are familiar with. But notice that the central moment of the story, the reason that they're known, is recounted in just one short verse. Uh, The writer shows intentional restraint in describing this sordid scene. He unfolds the narrative by describing David's actions through this rapid-fire succession of verbs. You see them there? In verse 2, he saw. Now he sent, he took, he lay. Verse 4. Saw, sent, took, lay. That's all she wrote. The action is quick. The verbs rush as his passion rushed. There's no romance to this scene. There's no dinner. There's no dancing. There's no sweet nothings. Bathsheba didn't arrive and find David playing the harp, you know. Saw, sent, took, lay. And before the verse is over, he sent her home. You see it there? End of verse 4. She returned to her house. Before the verse even ends, the moment he's done, the spell is broken. And that's again how sin works, isn't it? It promises so much and it delivers so little every single time. Of course, we're not naive. There would have been momentary pleasure in this scene. But the second it's done, regret kicks in. Regret kicks in. The sin we harbor will never make us happy. It might amuse us for a while, but in the end, it disappoints. Verse 5, we read that though he sent her home, the story is far from over. Why? Because Bathsheba has a verb of her own, conceived. And a message, too. I am pregnant. David, of course, knows that this spells trouble. Trouble for him, the trouble perhaps for his kingdom. And so the rest of the chapter recounts his great escape. It breaks into two sections, plan A in verses 6 through 13, and then plan B in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. So let's first look at plan A. How is David going to get himself out of this one? Well, in verse 6, he sends a message to Joab, the commander of his army, and says, send Uriah, Bathsheba's, ho- Bathsheba's, wife, uh, Bathsheba's husband, uh, home from the battlefield. Verse 7, when Uriah arrives, David um, basically gives him some chat. He says, oh, Uriah, great to see you. How's Joab doing? How's the battle going? Uh, How are all the troops feeling? You know, are things going well? He's looking into the eyes of the guy whose wife he's just slept with, and he's talking about the weather to pass the time until he can get to verse 8 where we see what he's up to. You see it there? Look at the time, he says, looking at his watch. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Go home. Take a shower. Relax. Then we read, Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present present from the king. Now, the Hebrew word for present here can mean food, so it's portions from the king's table. We see, right, what David is thinking. He's thinking, shower and supper will lead to sex. Because what man doesn't think that that sounds like a good night, right? And though Bathsheba's pregnant, if her husband's been home... No one will suspect anything. However, in verses 9 through 11... This cunning plan hits a snag. Uriah doesn't go home. Why? Because he's the man. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 is so great. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. They live in, in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He understood exactly what David was encouraging him to do. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The duplicity of David meets the integrity of Uriah. He is a faithful soldier, and his heart is with his people. It's unthinkable to him that he'd kick back and relax while his men are in such danger. Faced with the choice of doing what's right or what's easy, Uriah knows that there's no contest. I don't know if you've ever been around someone whose whose holiness, character, integrity just makes you feel a little awkward that's Uriah. What a contrast to King David. David isn't quite given up though on plan A and in verses 12 to 13 he gives it one more shot. He invites Uriah over for dinner and drinks and with a heavy hand he keeps pouring doubles until we read what? He made Uriah drunk. But even when he's liquored up, Uriah still won't go home. Maybe he couldn't make it home. I don't know, I'll just have a wee light down here for a minute. Like, you know. But either way, plan A has failed. And so what's it time for David to do? Surely it's time to, to give it up, to call it a day, to, to, to fess up. <clears throat> Not this king. When plan A fails, he moves straight on to plan B in verses 14 through 27. And this section really is tragic. David has thought it all through. I'll write to General Joab and I'll have him station Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest and then I'll have the men fall back so that Uriah is left helpless and has no chance. And there's a great irony here because back in chapter 3 of Second Samuel David rebuked Joab for unjustly murdering a man. And now David enlists Joab's help to execute a murder far more devilish than in chapter 3. David's not thinking about that, though. He's thinking Uriah will die in battle. Several others will die with him, which will make the whole thing look more believable. David widowed and orphaned many people in Israel this day. Collateral damage, the cost of doing business. Again, he's not thinking about that. He's thinking, yeah, we'll hand out honors and we'll spare no expense for the funerals and we'll have sackcloth and ashes and mourning and it will all be very sad and then in time I'll marry the girl and I'll raise the child and that'll look very magnanimous of me and in the end we'll live happily ever after and no one will know. That's his plan. David's adultery was punishable by death. But now he passes a death sentence of his own. And Uriah carries his own death warrant under royal seal. By verse 17, Uriah is dead. By verse 22, the sad news has reached Israel. By verse 27, David has married Bathsheba. One sin led to another sin led to another sin. And again, isn't that how sin works? When the spell comes upon us and we get that tunnel vision, we find this snowball effect where sin gathers speed and momentum. David commits adultery, steals, um, covets, lies, and murders. Half the Ten Commandments in one chapter. How suddenly and how fatally any of us can fall. And the bottom line, he gets away with it nearly because the bottom line of our passage is literally the bottom line look at the very last sentence of chapter 11 but the thing that David did the thing that David had done displeased the Lord it's interesting isn't it it's the first time that God appears in this chapter and he doesn't appear until the very end One writer says, the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. He may be silent, but he is not sightless. And he's going to deal with David, and he actually deals with David in the very next chapter. I encourage you this afternoon, read through chapter 12 and just reflect on how the Lord goes about bringing David back to repentance. But for now, what's the conclusion we should draw from chapter 11? What's the main point of this depressing affair. I think we get a clue in the answer key. Turn with me to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Find this on page 807. Verse 6, second half, you see it? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What's going on? Well, remember, now in Matthew, we find ourselves in the the genealogy of Jesus. And in Jesus' day, your genealogy was was something like your your resume. Your, Your place in life was largely determined by who your ancestors were. And this entire series through December has been on the fact that, that Jesus had a very dysfunctional family tree. And now look who appears in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David, King David, was Jesus' great-great-greater granddad. And Bathsheba was Jesus' great-great-greater grandmother. Now, why do you suppose that Matthew refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah, given that Second Samuel eleven has made such a point of her name, why doesn't Matthew pick it up and use it here? As someone might say, "There you go; it's the Bible being backwards again. Patriarchal, patriarchal society, no respect for women." But we've seen throughout this series that the Bible actually gives great place and prominence to women and not just to nice girls like Ruth but also the disreputable ones like Rahab and Tamar, all three of whom are listed by name in this very passage. No, by referring to her as the wife of Uriah, Matthew is not belittling Bathsheba. He is condemning David. Do you see what it is? he's doing here. The morally respectable people of Jesus' day, the morally respectable people that Matthew is, is writing to here were shocked by some of the people that appear in Jesus' family tree. And understandably so. Tamar's incest, Rahab's prostitution, we get that. They would frown and think, that's disgraceful. Honestly, do we, do we really need that, that kind of detail in here? Think of the children, right? And these same people when they got to verse 6, would have found that their tone suddenly changed. Ah, King David. Now there's a guy to have in your family tree. Descended from a king, and not just any king, but David, the greatest of kings. The warrior poet who could kill a giant and write a greatest hit all in one afternoon. You know? He danced before the Lord, and if you teased him for it, he'd kick your butt. He's the kind of guy that we want to be related to. He's the kind of guy that we find impressive. So as soon as Matthew mentions David's name, he adds that Solomon was born to him by the wife of Uriah. You see what he's doing? He's evoking all that took place in Second Samuel 11 and dragging all that content with him into Matthew chapter 1. He's showing us that, he's he's making sure that the moment we think of David is the very moment that we'll think of the lowest point in David's life. Yes, he was a great man, but the best of men are men at best. And so we ought not be too impressed. You see what he's getting at? He's saying, Matthew is saying, I told you about Tamar and Rahab and Ruth so that you would know. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And now I'm telling you about David to make sure you know no one is beyond the need of God's grace. No one is beyond the reach of grace, but no one is beyond the need of grace. It doesn't matter how bad you have been, but it also doesn't matter how good you have been. This uh, last week, I uh, sat on an interfaith panel at Accenture, the consultancy firm, and it was walking into the room was kind of like walking into a bad joke because there was a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, a Hindu priest, and me, you know, walking into Accenture. I'm glad we weren't walking into a bar. Um, and uh, one of the questions, one of the first questions they asked were, tell us about the, the biggest miscon- misconception our culture has about your faith. Biggest misconception people have about Christianity. And I said, um, that good people go to heaven. And it was fascinating that they didn't know what to do with that. Because people don't know what to do with the gospel. People don't know what to do with the gospel. The gospel teaches that the best and the worst are on level ground. And it doesn't matter if you're a prostitute. And it doesn't matter if you're the Pope. We all need grace. And grace is what Jesus comes to offer. Grace from your secret shame. Grace for your midlife crisis. Grace for everything in between. And Jesus doesn't just... Break the spell of sin. He casts a new spell of his own. Forgiveness. An embrace that enchants not just eternity, but time as well. What does he ask in response? That we believe in him. Believe that you're not beyond the reach of grace and that you're not beyond the need of grace. Then ask him for forgiveness. Do you believe in this Jesus this morning summer in a sentence no one's beyond the reach of god's grace no one's beyond the need of god's grace david was a great king but he wasn't the king that he was supposed to be and this passage is a rebuke to good people because we're not the good people we're supposed to be this is the fourth sermon in this series the first three have shown us that No matter what your sin, no matter what your shame, the cross is sufficient to forgive it. It's an encouragement to our fears. And this fourth sermon tells you that it doesn't matter how good you think you are. You're not good enough in the Lord's sight. It's a rebuke to our pride. King David wasn't good enough. We need a true and greater king. And at Christmas, we have one. Let's pray. Father, only the gospel can encourage the fearful and humble the proud. And we recognize, Lord, from the life of David that no one is beyond the need of your grace. And so, Lord, we come in a culture that prizes power, prestige, success, In a city that prizes these things above all else. We come confessing our weakness and our desperate need of forgiveness from your hand. And we thank you, Lord, for Christmas. Which gives us grace uh, from the prostitute to the Pope. So that there might be life in Jesus, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.